Amen. Well, it wouldn't be uh, like my leadership to not forget something when I announce it. So we neglected to do the uh, to give the word of assurance after my prayer. So um, I just want to read that for you. I don't know if the AV team has it up, but it's from Romans 5.1. By faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our gospel encouragement for this morning. I also um, want to say a word of welcome to Pastor Keith watching from home. And uh, Pastor Keith, we love you. We're continuing to pray for you and uh, thankful for your report. Uh, if you all haven't read the email, uh, Pastor Keith sent a, a, good, a good update last night, for, um, a little after seven, I think. So you can read that later. Please don't read it right now, um, but you can read it uh, later. And it's, it's encouraging. Pastor Keith's doing well, all things considered. So we're, we'll continue to pray for you, PK, and we look forward to having you back among us. So this morning we uh, move out of the seven letters uh, to the seven churches and into the real body of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4. And as we've seen the last several weeks, as we've looked at the seven letters, Christians who are suffering, indeed really all Christians, are prone to forget God. The circumstances of our lives can overwhelm us, and as a result we can fix our eyes and our attention on ourselves or the things that are immediately around us. And brothers and sisters, the vision of God that begins in Revelation chapter 4 and continues into Revelation chapter 5, which Lord willing we'll look at next week, these two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, really are the answers to the problems of chapters 2 and 3 that are described to the churches. Revelation 4 is given to the church to lift our eyes to the most important being in the universe and to summon us to behold our God. And this God is sitting on his throne. This vision in Revelation 4 is foundational to the rest of Revelation. Before we read anything else about what God is doing now or will do in the future, we are given a vision of a great Creator God who rules over all things and is deserving of unreserved allegiance and unceasing worship. The power of evil is great and must never be denied or ignored, but God as the creator of all is greater than any kingdom or any other being. Amid a world that is opposed to God, a world in which evil is real and horrific, a world in which God's church appears to be small and insignificant, we are given a vision that God reigns. So in light of all that we have seen in Revelation 2 and 3, with the problems that existed in these churches and the struggles that they had, what is the greatest need? A vision of a reigning God. That is the greatest need. So John pulls back the curtain, we should say the Holy Spirit through John, pulls back the curtain so that we see what's really happening in heaven. We are given an open door to an occupied throne, which is meant to bring great comfort to God's suffering people. And I pray that that vision will give us comfort the way it was designed to give the church's comfort in Revelation 2 and 3. So we're going to look at three points this morning in Revelation chapter 4, the first being the importance of the throne. The importance of the throne. Now... Some of you will know the name of the first modern astronomer, Nicholas Copernicus. Um, and he was the first modern astronomer to deny 
that the earth was the center of the solar system. He taught that the earth revolved around the sun. This view was very, very controversial in his day since almost everyone believed that the earth was the center of everything. Earth was the center of the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets. They were all thought to revolve around the earth. But Copernicus was right. However, though the sun is the universe's physical center, the true center of all things is the throne of God. The universe is not earth-centered, and it's not sun-centered. It's God-centered. Revelation refers to God's throne 40 times over the course of the entire book. But 12 times are included in just chapters 4 and 5. The throne is the dominant feature of John's heavenly vision. Everything else in this vision is oriented toward the throne of God. Now I want to show you that briefly as we talk about the importance of the throne. First of all, look at verses 3 and 4 where we read, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne were a rainbow, and we read about 24 thrones and elders, and, uh, but they're all positioned around the throne. We see in verse 5 that from the throne come forth flashes of lightning and thunder. In verse 6, we see the seven spirits, which is a reference, as we've seen throughout Revelation, to the Holy Spirit. And the sea of glass, in verse 6, are before the throne. And then in the midst of the throne, in chapter 4, verse 6, we see the four living creatures. So everything in this vision is oriented to the throne. There's something around it, from it, before it, in the midst of it. It's all oriented toward what's going on around the throne. It's as if the Holy Spirit says to John and to us this morning, listen to me, things are not as they appear to be. I'm about to show you the way things really are. I'm going to show you reality. I'm about to take you into the throne room of God himself. Things aren't running amok. The devil hasn't won. Evil isn't going to triumph. Neither fate nor cruel chance governs the universe. He who was and is and is to come has everything well in hand. This is not some pathetic deity wringing his hands over a world that's catapulting into oblivion. And he so wishes he could do something about it. He does not pace the floor of heaven with a furrowed brow, riddled with anxiety over the outcome of human history. He reigns sitting down. That's the hope. That's the vision. An all-powerful, sovereign God who has everything under control and everything well in hand. That's point number one, the importance of the throne. Point number two, the imagery of the throne. Let's talk about what some of these images are all about. Because John's vision in chapter 4 recalls, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, lots of Old Testament depictions of God seated on his heavenly throne, surrounded by 
various attendants in heaven. But Ezekiel chapter 1 is the most dominant Old Testament text that's informing John's presentation of the throne room of God in Revelation 4. Now, Revelation 4 and 5 also corresponds closely to the structure of Daniel 7. We won't be reading that as much this morning. Daniel 7, if you're familiar with that passage, depicts the Ancient of Days seated on the throne with fire from before the throne and angelic servants standing around him. But what John does is describe in biblical language what he is seeing in the vision. See, John, the Apostle John, knew his Bible. And he interpreted what he saw in light of what the Old Testament said. You, know, you have to know the Bible in order to know God. So when, when, when John is... Now get this. When John's looking at this vision of God, he's not inventing phrases. He's not inventing, well, this is what this looks like. This is what this looks like. He's describing it the way the Old Testament prophets described it. Which, which should tell us something. God is absolutely consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He hasn't changed. It's the same vision. It's the same input. It's the same knowledge that we're being given. We need to be able to look at the world, filter it through the whole Bible, and then describe the world we have seen the way the Bible describes it. That's what God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing as he receives this vision from God. Now let's dive in a little bit to some of these specifics and uh, talk about some of this imagery that's being given. First of all, in verse 1, John sees a door standing open in heaven. Now, this, if you remember last week with the church at Laodicea, remember how that, that appeal ended to that church? Jesus was standing outside the door and knocking, and he was asking to be invited back into the life of the church. And now it's almost as though in the very next verse, God just kicks the door open and says, look, look at me, see who I am. And this is very similar to what we read in Ezekiel chapter 1, the very first verse of the book of Ezekiel, where we read, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. The Lord is not keeping his truth hidden from his people. But God gives us an open door, just like he gave to Ezekiel, to the apostle John for us. Now what does he see? He sees a throne, verse 2, standing in heaven with one seated on the throne. And that's similar to what we read in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. In appearance like sapphire, seated above the likeness of a throne, was a likeness with a human appearance. We also think of Isaiah 6, 1. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Verse 3 of Revelation 4, where we read that God's appearance was like jasper and carnelian. These are precious stones. But again, he didn't just pull these ideas out of nowhere. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 has a similar vision of God where we read, like the appearance of a bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, there's a rainbow, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now, we're not told here what the rainbow is signifying, but the, I think if we're on good, good, solid biblical ground when we can possibly see it as a, as a reference to the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9, verse 13 verse through 16, where in that case, the rainbow was put in the sky to highlight 
God's faithfulness and his commitment to his creation that he will not destroy it again with a flood like he did in Noah's day. So again, this rainbow may be pointing to God's faithfulness to his people and his covenant-keeping promises. Now, in in verse 4, we are introduced to 24 elders. Now, I want you to go with me to Revelation chapter 21, where we meet the 24 elders again, and we're given a little bit more information about who these beings are. Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14 where we read, talking about the New Jerusalem, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So, It's a common interpretation that the 24 elders here refers symbolically to the 12 heads of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Thus, in that case, the 24 elders would stand for representatives as the entire people of God, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. All the people of God from all generations are represented before the throne. Now, one reason for viewing it this way is in Revelation, it's the people of God who wear crowns and are clothed in white and sit on thrones. We read that in chapter 2, verse 10, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, chapter 3, verse 21, chapter 20, verse 4, chapter 7, verses 13 through 15, chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, and chapter 19, verse 14. That, all those verses talk about the people of God wearing crowns and clothed in white and sit on thrones. Now, I totally have great respect for that interpretation. However, I believe it's more likely that these elders are angelic beings that represent God's people before the throne. They're not God's people themselves, but they are representatives of God's people before the throne as angels. Now, there's a few reasons I want to see them as angels. You don't have to buy my interpretation, but I want to give it to you anyway. In chapter 5, when the 24 elders are praising the Lamb, as we'll see next week, for ransoming people from every nation, interestingly enough, these 24 elders don't include themselves among the redeemed. In chapter 5, verse 9, they exclaim, You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They're not including themselves among the redeemed. They don't say we. They say they. Now, the 24 elders are also mentioned, I should say always mentioned, in Revelation alongside the four living creatures and other angels. We see that throughout this this chapter. We also see it throughout chapter 7, chapter 14, chapter 19. In other words, whenever we see this phrase, 24 elders, it's always the living creatures and angels are included, which makes me think that they're, they're supposed to be supernatural beings tied to these living creatures and angels as well. So those are my two main reasons for seeing, but seeing the 24 elders not as physical beings, I should say physical human beings, but as angelic representatives of the entire people of God. Now, both views share a lot in common. They're both talking about God's people from all time being represented before his throne. I just believe that these are angelic representatives of us as God's people before God's throne. Now, chapter 4, verse 5, 
says that from the throne comes flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And like I said, Ezekiel 1 is the main kind of framework for Revelation 4. And in Ezekiel 1, chapter 4, we read that from the throne, fire flashes forth continually. And then, two more verses. Chapter, verse 6, we read, Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now you'd say, Pastor Mark, you can talk about Ezekiel 1 again because you've been referencing Ezekiel. Yes, I am. It's there as well. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, describes the same thing. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was a likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And then one more verse, chapter 4, verse 7, where we are given the description of the four living creatures. Now, John's reference to the four living creatures alludes to Ezekiel 1 as well, especially verses 5 and verse 15. And Ezekiel, later in his prophecy, in chapter 10, verse 14, identifies these four living creatures as cherubim. Therefore, the living creatures are likely angelic beings who worship the Creator. They bear the likeness, now this is interesting, they bear the likeness of the strongest wild and domestic animals, the lion and the ox. So the strongest animal that's wild and the strongest animal that was domesticated at that time, the lion and the ox. So you might be saying, you haven't seen my German shepherd. That thing is not domesticated. But the lion and the ox in those days were the strongest wild and domestic animals. And then we see the swiftest bird in the heavens, the eagle. And the most dignified creature of all, the only one made in God's image, human beings. So what are we being told here? Well, at the, at the biggest and most broad and, and important level, the four living creatures are showing the proper order of all things, all things glorifying their creator. See, just as the 24 elders are representative of God's people, so these four living creatures are representative of God's creation. And it's showing the, the, the strongest wild animal, the representative of the wild animal kingdom worshiping God the representative of the, the, the domesticated sphere of animals worshiping God, the representation of the heavens worshiping God, the representation of earth worshiping God. See, all of creation is rightly ordered. All of creation is doing what it was made to do. This vision is articulating a model of a well-ordered universe, a well-ordered cosmos in which all created things in every region of the map turn toward this one center, the throne of God and the Lamb, to offer it unceasing, continual adoration. It's creation fixed. It's the way things should be. See, there is no disorder around God's throne. Everything is doing what it was created and made to do. And isn't that a comfort for God's people? To find some place where things are the way they're supposed to be. We look everywhere and things aren't the way they, they're supposed to be. We look in our own hearts. They're not the way they're supposed to be. We look around at the church. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We look at our families. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We look at our work. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We gaze up at the throne room of God. It's the way it's supposed to be. And so we look at the throne of God and we have hope that one day things will be the way they're supposed to be. 
And we, we, we long and look forward to that day when all of creation will glorify the creator in united harmony. Now, that's the vision, okay? And I didn't, I didn't go into a lot of detail. I don't think John is interested in giving us specific details about, okay, what's the Jasper and Carnelian really mean? I don't think that's his purpose. His purpose is God is precious. That's the purpose. It's not meant to communicate anything really beyond that. So I want to spend the rest of our time this morning drawing out four implications of this vision for us. The implications of the throne. What is this vision? How is this vision meant to impact us today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and so on, and really for the rest of our lives? What are the implications of the throne? I've got four of them this morning. First of all, this vision clarifies our identity. This vision clarifies our identity. What do I mean by that? I mean worshipers. Worshipers of God is who we were made to be. Worship is our chief calling. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. The worship of God is the heartbeat of the universe. It is the thing in the universe. The worship of God. In chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, we read that the 24 elders lay their golden crowns before the throne in submission to the creator's supreme authority. They cast their crowns down to show that any rule or any responsibility they have is merely a gift from God that they're giving back to him. The four living creatures and the 24 elders model for us the intended calling and vocation of all of God's creatures. Unceasing worship of the all-powerful holy God who lives forever. That's our calling. Unceasing worship of all of the all-powerful holy God who lives forever and ever. Now, brothers and sisters, think about this with me. Why do the four living creatures not cease day or night from praising God? Is it an expression of mere duty? That's their job? No one put a gun to their head. Why should they stop? For whom should they give up their praise? To do what? To go where? What can compare? What can rival? What can compete in its capacity to fascinate and fulfill and satisfy and entrance other than the presence of God? Is there another being more splendid than him? Is there another God more beautiful? True worship, brothers and sisters, is unceasing and uninhibited. In heaven, affections are ablaze for God. Bodies are prostrate in his presence. Praise is passionate. Enjoyment is extravagant. And here's the good news. Even as we remain on earth for this time being, when we sing this morning, we are joining in a chorus of praise that is resounding in heaven at this very moment. And it's still going on right now. It'll go on after I stop preaching. Unceasing singing and praise of God. While I'm preaching, they're singing. And they don't stop. And when you lay your head down on your pillow tonight, they'll still be shouting God's praise. And they won't feel one lick of pity about it. And when you wake up tomorrow morning, 
they'll still be singing. And we need to view our lives from this perspective. Now, that doesn't mean, obviously, that all we do is sing or we're not worshiping. Hopefully, you know your New Testament better than that, right? Romans 12.1 says that we are to continually worship God by offering ourselves as a sacrifice to him, available to him, doing everything we do for the glory of God, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do for the glory of God, going to work, caring for our families, loving our church, loving our neighbors, whatever we're doing, we're doing it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's worship. That's what we're made to do. Everything in the name of God, by the power of God, for the glory of God, in obedience to the word of God. That's worship. And we're called, that's our identity. That's who we are. That's when we're thinking and functioning rightly, this is who we were made to be and do. So what's the implication? The implication is you're made to be a worshiper and you're going to worship. You can't not. I can't not. I will worship something. I will love something. I will devote myself to something. And what this is doing is saying, devote yourself to God. You're made for that. You'll only be fulfilled through that. You'll only be satisfied by that. God made us for himself, as Augustine said, and our hearts are restless until we rest in him. Because we're made for worship. Now, secondly, this vision confronts our complacency. This vision not only orients us to our identity or helps us understand our identity, it also confronts our complacency. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you've seen as we've walked through the letter to the seven, letters to the seven churches that we have the same kinds of needs. We are tempted, just like Ephesus, to forsake our first love. We are tempted, like other churches, to embrace false teaching, to tolerate immorality, to give up when things get hard, to have the appearance of godliness but deny its power, to be lukewarm. And this vision is the solution to all of that. This vision has the power to transform our lives, to give us a reason to live, to grip our hearts with beauty, to purify us from every defilement, and take us all the way home. This vision has enough power to do that. What will it take it to pry us free from the world? What will free us from idolatry of trusting in things that we can see? What will make us untouched by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that is peddled daily to us in the world? Well, one hymn describes what will do that. Let me read it to you. What will strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? Not a sense of right or duty, but a sight of peerless worth. Not the crushing of those idols with its bitter void and smart, but the beaming of his beauty and the unveiling of his heart. Tis that look that melted Peter. Tis that face that Stephen saw. Tis that heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain you. Crown him now, unrivaled king. Amen. See, Christians all along have known this. The only thing that will draw our hearts away is a sight of a surpassing value. This is why Jesus shares the parable in Matthew 13, 44, the treasure hidden in the field. He goes, the man goes into the field, he finds a treasure, and he goes, oh man, now I've got to go sell all my stuff to get that. I don't want to do that. I like that stuff better. No, is that what he does? No, he says, he goes, after seeing that treasure, he goes and sells everything he has, and he buys that field. That's the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus says. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is. It's not, it's not feeling like, oh, if I sell all my stuff and embrace the kingdom, that's a huge loss. What does that say about God? No, but when we see the value of the kingdom, we're willing to get rid of everything else and say yes to that. That not only glorifies God, but that and that alone can draw us away from those things. A greater treasure, a greater value. And as a result, when we get spiritually stunned by the great treasure of God, we are not easily seduced by sin. We can spot a counterfeit like that when you spend a lot of time around real money. Right? If you want to spot a counterfeit, know the real thing really well. People in awe of God will always find sin less appealing. The reason that we don't is because we're not in awe of God the way we should be. That's the only reason we ever voluntarily choose to sin. It looks better than God does. When we are dazzled by God, it's difficult to be duped by sin. When you're enthralled by the beauty of God, it's hard to become enslaved to unrighteousness. People whose, whose attention has been captured by the beauty of Christ find little appeal in the glamour and trinkets of the world. People whose hearts are enthralled with the revelation of God's greatness begin to become deaf to the otherwise alluring sounds of sin, the flesh, and the devil. Ask the Lord, brothers and sisters, even in your heart right now, seal this vision to my heart, Lord. Pray that God would capture your imagination and lay hold of your desires and that he would make himself the supreme desire of your life. Pray that the next time you're confronted with some temptation, you would feel an overwhelming sense of God in your soul. Pray that you would feel contempt for the sin that would tempt you away from him. You would look at it and you would literally vomit internally. I have God. And God can do that. That's why we're to pray every day and strive to be filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit and the Spirit alone gives us that vision and that desire. Two more. Thirdly, this vision orients us to eternity. This vision orients us to eternity. Now, I want to say a word in this point to anyone here who is not yet a Christian. And then I want to give a comforting word for those of us who are walking with the Lord. Now, I want you, um, if you're not yet a Christian, whether you're a kid or an adult or a younger person, listen up, please. I want you to turn with me or at least, at least listen with me to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. This is the end of the unbelieving. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. This is the end for all those who are not believing in Christ. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence... From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is coming a day where the dead will be standing before the throne of God to be judged according to everything they've done and not done. It's not, you're not just going to be judged for the things you did. 
going to be judged for the things you didn't do that God required you to do, which will, which will be a mountain. Unbelieving humanity will then hide in terror before the wrath of the one who is seating on the, seated on the throne, according to Revelation 6, 16. Let me tell you this right now. No one in hell ever says, that was worth it. That was worth it. I'm glad I got my 25, 35, 45, 55, 95, 105 years in this world to live however I wanted so that I could be here forever. Nobody ever says that. No one ever says, having my way and not following Jesus gave me so much pleasure for my years on earth that I don't mind these flames. But here's the good news. For believers, for suffering, faithful believers who long for God, are offered shelter and comfort and an enduring place before the throne. Every believer of Jesus in heaven right now is crying out forever and ever, it was so worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it. Every disciple in heaven that ever gave up anything in this life for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom is praising the Lord there and saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He was absolutely worth it. Now think with me. Think with me about what you get when you follow Christ. What you get for denying yourself and taking up your cross. Well, you get salvation. But what does that mean? You get hope instead of despair. You get meaning instead of emptiness. You get forgiveness instead of condemnation. You get grace instead of what you deserve. You get a Savior who forgives you. You get a Lord who leads you. You get a friend who understands you. You get a counselor wiser than any other. You get a life worth living. You get a death worth dying. You get trials that sanctify. You get victories that satisfy. You get the assurance that you're living for a cause so great it's worth dying for. You get the joy of God himself. You get the presence of Christ himself. You get the power of the Spirit himself. You get the fruit of the Spirit. And you get eternity in the presence of the Almighty God. That is not a bad trade-off. That is not a bad deal. No matter if we're confined to a bed, suffering our entire lives. I guarantee you when Johnny Erickson Tata stands up on her glorified legs for the first time, she's going to say, that was pitiful. I know I spent most of my life paralyzed in a wheelchair, but that was nothing compared to now an eternity that sits in front of me of endless ages upon ages upon ages upon ages of glory in the presence of God. Finally, this vision restores our sanity, doesn't it? As we've seen, the vision clarifies our identity, it confronts our complacency, it orients us to eternity, but it restores our sanity. I think it's safe to say that our world and our country is going nuts. We are losing our ever-loving minds. And why are mostly we losing our ever-loving minds? Because our idols aren't delivering. Our idols aren't delivering. And when our idols don't deliver, even Christians who are subjected to idol worship are, are, are being frustrated. I wanted this country to be this way. And they've made an idol out of it. But this vision says, listen, this is... This is all about the throne. 
What's occupying your vision the most? The thrones of this world or the throne of God? See, Revelation 4 lifts a veil that keeps us, like I've already said, from seeing what's really going on in creation. We're tempted to think that kings and presidents and prime ministers of the world are running things, but with John's vision of heaven, we see who's truly in control. This chapter reveals that God the creator, not Caesar, not the Roman emperor in these days that were persecuting the church, has ultimate authority and thus deserves ultimate allegiance. But Revelation 4 invites us to view this world, our church, and our lives from the perspective of God's holy throne room. Brothers and sisters, the course of history is not determined by political intrigue or military might. It's determined by God. Regardless of how bad things appear in the world, our sovereign God is on his throne and that will not change anything. That's not going anywhere. So what should we do in light of this? This is how I'll conclude. I want us to read verses 9 through 11, again, of Revelation chapter 4, and then I want us to obey it. We're going to read, and we're going to worship, and we're going to spend some time in worship. And worship team, I'm going to wrap up a little bit early. I didn't tell you guys this, but you're welcome to lead us however you want to lead us, and we'll just stand here and we'll sing for a few more minutes. We can sing Holy, Holy, Holy is again. We can sing Crown with Many Crowns again. We can sing couple more songs again. And we're just going to worship the Lord because I, I don't think this vision is meant to do anything else for us. It's not meant to give us 10 tips for godly living. It's meant to say, God can be trusted. God is worthy. Lift your voice. Lift your heart. Praise him. And that's what we're going to do. So let's read verses uh, 9 through 11, and then we'll close in prayer, and then I'll invite the worship team to come and you can sing for a few minutes, and then we'll just uh, we'll dismiss. Revelation chapter 9, or 4, verses 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you O Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created let's pray together worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Lord, we acknowledge as your people that we were created and then recreated by you. We were born of you, and we were born of the Spirit. We were made a creation, and then we were made a new creation. And we worship you as our creator, as the one who has made all things, as the one who sustains all things, as the one to whom all things will one day bow in prostrate worship, giving you unceasing adoration and allegiance for eternity. Lord, would you capture our hearts this morning with a greater vision of who you are? 
Would you capture our gaze and our hearts and orient us around the throne? May we position ourselves daily before your throne, saying, your will, not my will, be done. May we bow in your presence and prostrate ourselves. And at the end of every day, may we proverbially or symbolically take off our crowns and say, everything that I have done today, anything that was worthwhile was done in you and through you and to you and throw it down at your feet. And say, you and you alone are worthy of worship. You and you alone are to be all in all. You and you alone are to be supremely praised and valued and honored. Not me. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name, give glory forever and ever. And we want to do that now in some small way. We want to join that choir that right now around your throne with the 24 elders and the living creatures and all the angels and all the redeemed are crying out. We want to lend our voices to that great heavenly choir this morning and praise your great and awesome name. Help us to do that now in these next few minutes together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Pastor Mark, for preaching us the truth.